Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome, welcome again to St. John's. My name's Andrew. I'm one of the ministers here. Last week, Kirk introduced this series by saying that when we read from Leviticus in church, you might end up with an expression like this on your face, and I think some of you have it now after our reading. So we're going to get into that passage a bit today. Um, so as Tim said, the series that we're doing is called The Heart of Life, and the purpose that we have for doing this uh, is hopefully straightforward. We're going to ref- we want to reflect as a church on what we can do to put God at the centre of every part of our lives, uh, because that's what it means to be a Christian. But to do that is actually a very hard thing to do in practice, and to do it means thinking deeply and in detail about our whole lives and the particular things that we should do to be followers of Jesus and to live that out. And so the way we want to get into this topic is to look at the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, because this is a book, as Tim said, about how people can live with God at the centre. But as we talked about last week, and as we've just heard, it's a very difficult book to understand. It's probably the hardest book in the Bible for anyone to get our heads around, because it grapples in detail with these things, the guidelines for religious life in ancient Israel. So last week, Kirk set the stage for our series by reflecting on why Christians should read an Old Testament book like Leviticus and how we should read it. And he reminded us that the Bible as a whole is a story of God's relationship with people. Um, And at the very centre of that story is Jesus, who reveals God's plan for the world. And the Old Testament, all of it, looks forward to the coming of Jesus. And so we read it uh, to understand who Jesus was when he came and what he did. Uh, But now, when we read the Old Testament as Christians in a book like Leviticus, we look back at it through what Jesus did. So Kirk gave us the example of the Jesus window to help us to understand. So I've got the book of Leviticus open there, looking back through the cross of Jesus. And so when we look at a book like Leviticus, we look back at it through Jesus, through the window of what he did, and we interpret it through that perspective. So that's just help us understand why and how we read a book like this, even though it may seem a bit strange to start with. It's because that's how we can begin to grasp the significance for us of things like the reading we've just had about the sacrifices in the tabernacle in Israel. Um, Before we think about those, though, I want to set the scene a bit more for the big themes of our series. So if you read the Bible um, from beginning to end, it's basically about God on a plan to restore the world to the way it should be. Uh, God is a builder, and he's made a world that is good, which he wants to live in in relationship with people. But this building plan has gone off off plan. It needs to be fixed. And so the way that God's God's gone about fixing things is has he chosen to enter into particular relationships with people, relationships of love and commitment and healing, um, and who can then be his agents in the world to go about um, bringing things back to the way they should be. And that's always been the task of the people of God, whether you look at the Old Testament um, people of Israel or you look at the church today. And so we think... When we're reading the book of Leviticus, a helpful way for us to look about it is, that, is to think of it, think of it as a book that's about relationships um, and the way that we can intentionally renew our relationships so that God can work through us and be part of healing the world. And so we're going to be looking at, in this series at four types of relationships that we have, sort of starting on the inside of our life and moving out. So our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, 
uh, our relationship with other people and with the whole creation. So this is what this diagram is saying. And Leviticus covers all of these different types of relationships. And today, I want to think about the first circle right in the middle, our relationship with God. This is about the heart of life. And our relationship with God is the heart of our life. Um, it's the deepest kind of relationship that we can have. God made us and he's the source of everything in our life. And so when our relationship with God is going right, God's love and God's power can then radiate outwards from inside us to transform us, to transform our relationship with other people and to transform the way we affect the world around us. When, when our relationship with God is wrong, everything is wrong. When it's right, everything starts to come right. So we believe God is at the heart of everything that exists. God is like the sun at the centre of our solar system. He gives life, he gives warmth and energy to everything that exists. Um, if we lost the sun, everything would stop for us. And so this, but this is true in a special way for human beings because the Bible tells us that human beings were made specifically for God to live in our hearts, for the personal spirit of God to live right down in the depths of our being and for us to be living houses for the presence and power of God in the world. There's a Saint Augustine, who was a 5th century bishop, he said it this way about his relationship with God. God is more intimate to me than I am to myself. God is more intimate to me than I am to myself. My relationship to God is the deepest part of what it means to be a human being. We're designed to have the sun, you know, the, the glory of God presence living in our hearts. And so what Leviticus does with this idea of our relationship with God and him living in us is it gives us a picture of it to understand. And this, is, this picture is the tabernacle. So we looked at this last week. Kirk started describing for us. So the tabernacle was a tent in the centre of the Israelite camp, which was where people came to worship. And so it was a symbol for them of God's presence with them, their relationship with God. And so it was at the very heart of their life as a community. And you can see in this picture that there were two parts to it. So there's the inner tent, which is the tabernacle itself. And there's an outer courtyard with an altar at the front. And that was where people would bring sacrifices as they came to worship God out in this courtyard. And so the tabernacle was an architectural symbol of having God at the centre of your life, at the centre of your community. So this is how they felt about it. And it's really helpful for us to understand how the Israelites must have felt about having the tabernacle in the centre of their camp. Because then we can understand what the sacrifices were about and know what the, and understand them better. So for them, having the tabernacle, the presence of God at the centre of the camp, it is like having the sun come down from the sky and live right in the middle of their, of their camp. It was like having a nuclear reactor right in the centre of town. Okay, Its powerful thing is right in the midst of us and it gives us its energy, yes. But it is a frightening thing to have. The tabernacle was an awesome and scary place. And so Moses and the priests, we read in Leviticus, under God's instructions, built around it a series of rituals to help people to build and maintain their relationship with this God who was living in their midst. And so that became the systems of sacrifices and offerings that we read about um, today and in the rest of Leviticus. So sacrifices. Why did they use sacrifices is a good question for us. Um, I think, in one sense, sacrifices, sacrificing animals 
was just really how people did religion in the ancient world. It's a, basically a universal practice. Um, it was how they did religion. It was how they approached God. And as we'll see, sacrifices are actually, when they're done this way, a tangible way of expressing a variety of spiritual things that are going on in our lives. So sacrifices was like the baseline religion, and Moses and the priests did, did things with it to help people understand God. I think they are a strange idea for us today, aren't they? Um, we have a problem when we read about sacrifices. You might have felt a bit uncomfortable in the, when we had our reading, reading about the things that they did, because it's so culturally foreign to us. It's a bit yucky to read about. Um, and as we read about them, like in the reading today, the reason we did the whole chapter is that we can hear all these repetitive details, all this an obsessive detail with what to do with all these different animals and how to arrange all the different bits on the altar and the bits you have to wash and, um, and how you burn them and all those sorts of things. And if we read it, though, just at that level of strangeness, we miss the heart probably of what it was like to go to the tabernacle for the sacrifice and what was the point. So I think, I think we feel a bit, perhaps, about the sacrifices in Leviticus um, when we read them, the way someone might feel in the distant, far distant future about the AFL if the only thing they knew about it was, a was they had a copy of the laws of Australian football. Okay, I want, this is actually a very good <laughs> analogy. I had a bit of a read of this this week um, in preparation for this. And um, there's certainly a very precise description of the game of AFL. If you ever read this document, it's about 70 pages long. It tells you everything. There's lots of information about how to play it, all the different rules and everything. Um, but has anyone ever read this for fun here? No. So I think if you read this, and you, you, this is your introduction to AFL, you would not understand why people love it so much. Um, if you want to know what AFL's about, you actually have to experience it for yourself, don't you? You have to go to a game or play, you know. So AFL is really about the drama. It's about the excitement of the game. You know, you go to the MCG, you're all dressed up. It's a huge crowd. You get a hot dog for eight, nine, ten dollars, whatever it is now, you know. Uh, and you... It's part, of the, it's part of the ritual, you've got to do it. Um, and you dress up, everyone's dressed up in their colourful clothes and they've got weird face paint on. There's everyone's cheering and booing and there's all the tension um, and the triumph when someone wins and every, all the families and friends together. It's a big thing, isn't it? It's great. That's what the game is about. You know, these laws, they're just about making sure that it's played well and telling you how to do it. And this, so the tabernacle in Israel was the same, and these laws were the same. You know, these rules we just read in Leviticus, ordinary people wouldn't have read them very often, I think. Any more than footy fans will sit down and read the laws of Australian football before a game. Um, people did the sacrifices. They knew what they meant through experience. Um, one of the difficulties we have in Leviticus is that it doesn't actually explain really in detail why people did the things that they did. So there are some things we just don't know why they did them. <laughs> um, but the people would have known by experience what it meant to do all these particular actions. And so we'd probably understand it more easily if we could do a sacrifice ourselves. So I thought we might do one today. But, um, the goats ran away. Sorry. Uh, no. Unfortunately, health and safety regulations mean we can't do an animal sacrifice here, but, you know, maybe one day. Um, so we'll have to imagine it. Imagine you are going to the tabernacle, okay? You're an Israelite. You've got a bull or a goat, you've got it on a rope and you're dragging, you're feeling, I want to, I want to come to God. So imagine what happens when you enter the tent 
uh, in the courtyard and what it would be like, the sounds and the smells of this busy place. You know, there's animals making all their noises. There's an altar over there. It's got fire burning on it and you can smell the meat. Um, the priests are walking around. They've got these elaborate clothes on. You know, yes, there's blood everywhere. It's splattered all over the place. And you can see right in front of you um, at the end of the courtyard this place. This is the tent, this tabernacle, where the Ark of the Covenant is. Yes, the Ark of the Covenant's in there and the presence of God is in here. So imagine, imagine that feeling. It's an intense place. Things are happening. It's not a boring place at all. And so the question for us then is not, is this, was this an exciting thing to do? It certainly was. It was very engaging and worship for them. But the question for us is, what would you be doing when you brought these sacrifices to the temple? What was the point? What would you want to achieve? Um, luckily, despite how much detail there is in Leviticus, there's really only two types of offerings that are described in the book. So the first type are about, how do you heal your relationship with God when something's gone wrong? And the second type are about expressing your thanks to God for what, for what he's done for you. That's all that there really are, those two things. So think about them in turn. The first type of sacrifices are about what do you do when something goes wrong in your relationship with God. So these are the sin offerings, the guilt offerings or the purification offerings or the offerings of atonement, which we read about if you look in the rest of the book. And so we're going to talk a bit more about the idea of purity next week in Leviticus. That's a huge topic. But let's think about the problem of sin and the problem of the guilt offering. So why is that a problem? Well, as Tim said, think again, what is the tabernacle? It is the presence of God at the center of the community. And so the problem is God is holy. God is perfectly good. And so what happens when we, around the people who live around God, are unholy? What happens when we do the wrong thing? And yet we still live with this holy God in our midst. This is dangerous because it's like God doesn't mix with unholy things. Um, so, there are two things that might happen if that's the case for us. Either we're not going to be able to come to, to worship God and to be near Him, because we'll sort of get burnt, like flying into the sun. You know, we can't, go, we can't get close. Or else, God will withdraw His presence from the heart of the community because it's unholy and leave the tabernacle empty. And we won't be the people of God anymore. And that was, a, that was a huge fear for the people of Israel. Um, and we read later in the Old Testament that eventually they did see that God did abandon the, the centre of their community. He left the temple because the sinfulness of Israel became too great. And this is when they went into exile in Babylon. So this is a problem uh, for the people of God. And the sacrificial system acknowledges that it's a problem. And it gives us a means for fixing it. And that's what's called atonement, which really just means reconciliation with God, getting things right with God. So it works like this, you know, you're an Israelite and you realise, actually, I've done something wrong or there's something that I should have done which I haven't done. I need a way to put myself right with God. So you get your animal, bring it to the tabernacle. And it says it needs to be an animal that has no defect. There's nothing wrong with this animal at all. So you go to the priest, you say, I'd like to make a sacrifice. And what you're doing when you're saying this is essentially saying, there is something wrong with me. I am not pure. But I'm bringing an offering of something that is pure. There's nothing wrong with this animal. And, and it says, as we read, you lay your hand on the animal. You're saying to God, this is what I want to be. I want to be perfect, unblemished, to give my life to you the way I should. I'm sorry. Accept me. 
and then the animal would be sacrificed, the whole thing on the altar. And so it's a symbol of your life being offered to God and, re and receiving and, and renewal from Him. And you know that you're forgiven and you can start again because God has told you to do this and to return to Him. And so the result is that your relationship with God is back to where it should be. That you're reconciled. You've dealt with this problem and you're now, you've identified with what, you, what, you, what God has made you to be and not what you are. He's forgiven you. So this is something we read that people did all the time, individually, as they became aware of problems in their relationship with God. But once a year, there was a ceremony, a special one, called the Day of Atonement, where the high priest did this kind of sacrifice on behalf of everyone in Israel to acknowledge that there are sins that we commit that we don't even know about. Or there are things that people don't confess and bring to God. And this is going to build up the unholiness and, and lack of purity in our community to the point where it becomes a problem. So the whole community needs to be cleansed and set right with God, and the high priest did that. And so you can read about that in chapter 16 in Leviticus. Okay, so this is the sacrifices of atonement. Do you understand a bit more why they did this and what it meant for them? Now, just the way you think about our understanding of sacrifice, if you look at the sacrifices for sin in Leviticus, there's something that's really worth noting, it's very important, and because we need to understand it's not about the animal. God is not interested in the animal itself. He doesn't actually want blood or death. What he wants is what the animal represents in the sacrifice. Um, your life offered to God and the perfection that he is offering you and the cleansing that God gives, you returning and repenting of your sin. So you can see that if you read Leviticus, there are actually rules about if you're poor, because not everyone can afford to bring a goat or a, a sheep or a bull to be, to be sacrificed. And if they can't, as we read, they can bring a bird. Or if they're really poor and they can't afford a bird, they can bring a bag of flour. A bag of flour in Leviticus, will atone for your sins. It will affect reconciliation with God when you offer it to him. God doesn't need these sacrifices. He wants us to offer our life to him and to repent of sin. What he wants is the relationship with his people to be healed, for people to repent of their sin and come back to him so he can live with them and they can experience the blessings that come from having God in their center of their life. So this is the sacrificial system of atonement. And this, this worked, but over time people came to feel that there was something lacking in it. There was something a bit futile about this constant wavering between holiness and unholiness. I've, uh, I've got to come back, I've got to do another sacrifice, I keep having to do this. Um, never just being able to stay holy and stay in relationship with God and fix this problem in me that means I keep going away from God. And Hebrews 10 in the New Testament talks about this problem. So in verse, uh, chapter 10, verse um, one, uh, sorry, 1 and onwards, he says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But these sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, what, uh, can you just uh, wait, wait for that? Thanks. Yeah. So, what was actually necessary for people 
was a way for, for holiness, for God's presence that was in the tabernacle to actually come for, out from the tabernacle and get inside them to enter into us, to enter into our hearts, to permanently change us from the inside out to be the kind of people that God wants us to be, the kind of people that God can live with. And so there needed, they knew, to be a true atonement, something that solved this problem once and for all. And of course, as Christians, we believe that this is the significance of the death of Jesus on the cross. So Hebrews 10 goes on to say, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So, we look through the Jesus window, we see what the, what the system of sacrifices was. It, there's a shadow and there's the reality. In Leviticus, we had the shadow. You would lay your hand on an animal without defect and identify with it. This is what I want to be. It, as Christians, we now have the reality that this was just a shadow of. We identify with Jesus through faith. He offered his perfect life to God. And so our own lives now become like his life and the relationship with God that he has, he gives to us as well. And that's complete. It's forever. We don't have to keep going back. And so the sacrificial system was fulfilled in Jesus. In fact, it only ever worked because Jesus was going to come one day. So if we look through the Jesus window at Leviticus, we can see that without knowing it, all those Israelites over the centuries who brought sheep, who brought goats or birds to be sacrificed for their sins, were actually putting their trust in Jesus and the sacrifice that he was going to bring later. So this is why we don't make animal sacrifices anymore as Christians, because we trust in the sacrifice of Jesus. Um, we offer our lives to God through him. We don't need to do all those things anymore. So those are the, those are the sacrifices for sin and guilt in, in Leviticus. But the sin sacrifices weren't the only ones. They're only the first kind. And there are also sacrifices that are to do with thanksgiving. So the thanksgiving offerings, if you read your Bible, it'll say fellowship offering in the title of the chapter. That's how you know that that's what they're talking about. What they were about were about acknowledging God is at the center of our lives by recognizing that everything that we have comes from him. So everything that is good in our lives comes from God. He's the creator. He's the source of all goodness. We acknowledge that. So we don't just say, I've got all these possessions, I have all these blessings, I'm going to take them off somewhere, I'm going to enjoy them privately. We actually bring to God an acknowledgement of his part in the, in the good things we have in life and we express our thankfulness to him. This strengthens our love and relationship with him. And so this is what these sacrifices were about in Leviticus. And if you read them, it essentially involves having a party with God um, in the courtyard of the tabernacle. So, for instance, you know, God's given you a great big flock of sheep and you're very thankful for that. So you take one of them along to the tabernacle and you take some bread, you know, it's like a dinner party, and the sheep is killed there and it's, it's divided into bits. And part of it is burned on the altar and you and the priests um, eat the rest. Some, sometimes a priest, sometimes not. So what's happening there? It's a meal with God. It's a barbecue happening in the tabernacle. You've brought it, you've brought some lamb, or some beef, and it's going to be—it's been um, offered to God, and you're eating it with Him. It's a special meal, and it's—and you bring the good stuff, 
not the cold sausages, you bring the gourmet ones, you know, the special stuff. You know, you acknowledge that your blessings have come from God. You bring the best animal. Again, you bring an animal that's got no defect. And you give God the best part of the meat. That's why it says in many places in Leviticus, the animal, the animal that you bring to God needs to be without defect. And also, there's a sort of principle, all the fat belongs to the Lord, yes. All the fat belongs to the Lord, it says of the sacrifices many times. Because you bring the best that you have to God in thanksgiving to him. You don't bring the sick animal that you can't um, use because you just want to do something and you want to, oh yeah, I'll, I'll bring that one because it's going to be sacrificed. No, you bring the best. You're trying to show genuine thanks and put your relationship with God first. And you give God the fat. Now, the thing about the fat, it's a bit difficult for us, isn't it? Because we cut the fat off anyway often and we don't like it. Um, but the Israelites loved fat because they didn't get to eat it very much. And so for them, the fat is the best part of the animal. And so it was always put on the altar to be burned rather than eaten by them, to be offered to God. It's the, he gets the best part. So um, this is the thanksgiving side of sacrifice. This is, what, this is all these things that they're doing that is described in Leviticus. And you can see this is just a way to continually return to God, acknowledge that he's at the heart of your life, and build a sense of gratitude and love to him and into your relationship with him. And again, God didn't want or need the animals. He doesn't eat the fat. <laughs> it's just a symbol of um, our, our thanksgiving to him. Um, the helpful thing about the tabernacle as a setup is that the meat was never actually brought into the tent of the tabernacle itself, God's, which is God's dwelling place, as though God really needed people to make sacrifices to him. You know, he was hungry um, and they could feed him so that, he, so that he could bless them. You know, that's the way the pagan gods would work. Actually, it was the other way around. People brought sacrifices to God because he had already blessed them. They didn't get anything for this. It was just a thanksgiving offering. It was about gratitude. It was about relationship, not earning something from God or some um, uh, duty that they had to do. So that's the second thing. All the sacrifices basically are one of those two things in Leviticus. So that's the sacrificial system. And you can see that the point of it was to build people's understanding of what it means to have God at the heart of your life. What does it mean to get your relationship with God right so that God can, be, can live in us and work through us? And that meant continually returning to God, turning away from sin, being thankful for all the good things that come from God and acknowledging that he is the source of all of that. That's what it's about not that complicated um, so what does this mean for us though we don't do their sacrifices anymore well firstly as Kirk showed us this week um, it's helpful to look at Leviticus through the through the Jesus window because it gives us um, new a new use for the symbols in it so Jesus has actually fulfilled the symbol of the tabernacle in an amazing way because the tabernacle as a tent was a, a, like a picture of God living in the middle of us but Jesus himself was actually God actually living with us. So in John 1 verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And so the word for dwelling there literally means to build a tent or a tabernacle. It's saying Jesus actually did what the tabernacle was a sign of. So Jesus came to, God has come to live among us. And not just among us, to live in us. So after his resurrection, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to live in his disciples. So our situation is different from what it was in the Old Testament times. The heart of our life, if we're Christians, is not a tent where God lives, because God lives with us and he lives in us personally. As followers of Jesus, we are 
the tabernacle now. Our own hearts are the place where God lives. And so our task is to cultivate that relationship with God in our heart, to return to him continually and to centre our lives on an awareness of his presence with us. And so we do that with a life that's centred on thankfulness to God and an awareness of our need to make, for him to make us holy like he is so he can work through us. You may be familiar with the words that we use when we end our Holy Communion service where we say, we pray, Father, we offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice through Jesus Christ our Lord. Send us out in the power of your spirit to live and work to your praise and glory. This is a prayer that God would live in our hearts and that we would be seen um, in the world to do that. So this is a task for us. We've got to think about what does it look like in practice um, to put God at the centre of your life and in your heart. So um, I just want to give you some of the ideas we're thinking about. At, at our training day two weeks ago, we talked about the idea of a rule of life. Okay? This is the idea that we need to centre our lives um, on the glory of God and paying attention to him, you know, looking to him uh, for what, for, in everything we do. And the idea is that as Christians, we need to structure our lives around our relationship with God so that he's at the heart of our lives and everything we do comes from that heart. So for the Israelites, the sacrificial system was this kind of rule of life that they had. It gave them a, a practical way of doing that. Um, it was a structure that enabled them to continually come to God, to give thanks, to repent and to uh, get things right with him. So if we're to grow in our relationship with God, we need to develop something like this in our own life as well. And I think we're, and we're very fortunate as Christians because we have the free, more freedom, much more freedom than the Israelites about how that works out in our individual lives, in our families, because we're not bound to the central tabernacle and the system of sacrifices anymore. So the tabernacle, as I said, it's our lives, it's us, it's where we are. It's God working in the midst of everything we're doing in our lives. And so really this is about thinking about how do we pay attention to God within the schedule of our lives? How do we shape it around him? So you might think about what would your day look like if God was at the heart of everything you do? So for instance, I've started thinking about my own rule of life, my own practices in this, and I've started the practice of stopping three times a day just to be with God, to pray, to read a small part of the Bible. Um, just return to God. Remember throughout the day that he's there um, to listen to him. So I don't lose track of this reality as the day goes on. Um, and now I also try to practice that, you know, whenever good, something good happens to me, just quickly thank God for it. Um, and meals are an especially good time to do that because we're thanking God for the great things he's given us. So that's each day. And there's a kind of rhythm to this across the week as well. You know, there should be, if we're followers of Jesus, special times and days that we set apart to remember that God is at the heart of our lives and pay attention to him. And that's why we have a weekly worship service here on Sunday, that every week we do return to give thanks to God for what he's done. Um, uh, we confess our sins, we praise God, we listen to him and we celebrate. That's why we do this. And we, in, our, in my family, we've also started practicing with the idea of the Sabbath, which is the idea that we set aside time just to be with God and not do other things. And we talked about that a lot as a church last year. So on Friday evening, our family from 6 p.m., that time is God's time with us. We don't do anything else. We don't work. We just enjoy time with him and with each other. And we talk about what we're thankful for this week, what God's been doing to us. And so that's something that we can do regularly as part of our week. And our relationship with God is also worth thinking about at longer intervals, more deeply. 
perhaps every month uh, spending a day with God in prayer and reflecting on what, where he's speaking to us, where we might need to change. And that's, that's what we do as our staff team. We, all, we have a day off each month to, look, um, to spend time with God. Um, or <clears throat> every year sitting down and seriously assessing what is it we are doing with our life to offer, our God, offer to God our lives as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Um, so what is God getting of my time, of my money, of my energy, my passion? You know, is he getting the fat of my life this year or is he getting the leftovers? And so that's the sort of thing that we're going to do and we need to do to wrestle with, to think about God, putting God at the heart of our life, his relationship, our relationship with him and to experience his presence. So that's the first, this is our first task as Christians, to get this relationship right. It's the heart of what we're doing. And it's a journey into a stronger experience of God working through us. And, the, and we see Leviticus gives us some um, ideas about what that means in practice um, as the Israelites lived that out. And so next week we're going to move out to the next stage. What does Leviticus say about how our relationship with God should change us and the way that we relate to ourselves? What, is it, what kind of people are we going to become if, this, if God is at the heart of our life? So I'd like to commit now this series to God and the rest of this time as we reflect on that today. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have um, graciously chosen to heal us, to save us, to enter into our lives, to call us back to you and to change us to be the kind of people that you want us to be. We pray that all of us here who are followers of Jesus would put our trust in him and put him at the centre of our lives so that we can be changed. Please teach us how to do that purposefully, passionately, intently and to encourage each other on this journey. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.